passage that Hannah read in just a moment. This is, that's a post-resurrection passage where Jesus comes and sees the disciples. <clears throat> but we're going we're gonna to come back to that in a minute. But first, today we're starting a new series, and the series is from the book of Revelation. So notice I said it's from the book of Revelation. The series is not on the book of Revelation. Those are two different things. If we were going to do a series on the actual book of Revelation, it's going to take a little longer than the few weeks we've got marked aside for this. This is a series from the book of Revelation, and it happens in the context of something much larger, much larger. Uh, this year, we've been operating with a theme. So if you're brand new to the church, welcome. Uh, our theme this year is one, one. What does it mean for the church to be one? And uh, there's a scripture actually in the foyer on a big sticker on the wall, uh, John chapter 17. And in that passage, Jesus is praying for his disciples. And then obviously in turn, he's praying for us. And he prays in John 17 that, that you and I might be one as he and the Father are one. In other words, unity. What would it look like for the church to truly function and operate as one? And then we've been asking ourselves in the process of this, this whole theme, what does it look like for a church in a world that is built on division? Our world is built on division. In a world of division, what does it look like for the body of Christ, for us, to not give in to that pattern? To not allow ourselves to be divided or adopt that posture of division. And then furthermore, what does it really look like for the church as one not to add to the division in the world too? Which is really, really important. Unfortunately, the church has been complicit over the years of stoking the flames of division in the church and in the world. Here's what I want to tell you. That's not real life. That is not who we are. We take a completely different posture. So we've spent this year talking about all kinds of things, being, being one in faith, hope, and love. We did a series through the book of Ephesians, a little Ephesians chapter 4 in January. What does it mean for us to be one in faith, one in hope, one in love? Then in February, we kind of tested that. And we talked about some divisive issues, divisive issues in our world, but if we were honest, divisive issues in the church too. We talked about politics. We talked about immigration. We talked about race, and we talked about human sexuality. More than anything, we really talked about how to talk about those things. How do you address those things when we don't see eye to eye on all the nuances that are apparent in those things? So what does that look like? And then obviously we just came through 140. This, this whole series of Lent where one church has been going forward together looking at the same thing this whole time. And that leads us then up until today. And today is one vision. One vision. So before we jump into this passage <clears throat> from Revelation that we're going to look at, we need to clarify a few things. Even as recent as two weeks ago, uh, I was in the office of two of our uh, staff members. I don't know that I was pleading that I could change this series to something else. But I was insinuating that I did not feel comfortable bringing this series. And, and for, for, for various reasons, and one of the reasons, honestly, is that every once in a while I preach a message that feels like a spanking. 
and I don't want to be a bad guy. I like to be the good guy, right? I like to be the nice guy. Everybody's like, man, that pastor, he's just so nice. You know, he says all these things that make me feel so good. And I just know, I know even in this message, I'm going to say some stuff, be like, mm, I don't know about that guy. I, man, I, yeah, it was good, right? It was a good run. It was a year. It was a good year. But man, here we are. So every once in a while, it feels like I kind of bring a spanking. But I'll, I'll be honest to you, the other aspect of this is, this is the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation. Uh, what comes to mind when you hear book of Revelation? End times? The Antichrist? The rapture? Being, quote unquote, left behind? The mark of the beast? Wars, rumors of wars, natural disasters, and then there's that infamous word, apocalypse. Apocalypse. And here's the unfortunate reality. The word apocalypse is actually a really beautiful word that has been misapplied and misinterpreted for a long, long time. Apocalypse has lost its original meaning. Uh, it actually is the original word for revelation, and ultimately its meaning is a revealing of truth. It's an unveiling of truth, is an apocalyptic event, is where the truth is revealed. Now unfortunately, today, even in our in popular culture, it represents a catch-all for traumatic disasters and large-scale destructive events and different movements. So uh, like for instance, when September 11th, 2001 hit, uh, I very distinctly, more than one person in the church that I was serving came to me and said, Pastor Rich, do you think this is the apocalypse? This is the apocalypse. The book of Revelation is, I want, I want to make sure, and this is a little bit, this, this is a different message. I'm just, I know, that's the other thing. Easter was fun, wasn't it? It was really good. Um, and then all you, some of you are like, yeah, we should probably go back the next week. And then this is what you get. Uh, it's apocalyptic literature, just like the book of Daniel in the Bible is apocalyptic literature. There's apocalyptic literature in various places, and what it more than anything is, is it's God using people and God speaking in such a way that the truth will be revealed for his people to see, okay, in various means and in various ways. It's a vision of truth whose main purpose is to reveal to the people of God, a way of living right now, even in preparation for the future. Now, unfortunately, and this is what we're kind of doing today, is we're peeling back some of the other applications before I think we can actually see what God has for us as real life as we continue to move forward. Uh, the book of Revelation has been used and abused by people on the fringes of society and by spiritual abusers uh, for centuries, for centuries. Uh, as early as 200 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, people misapplied the book of Revelation to justify charismatic and prophetic visions that ultimately benefited the ones who were having the charismatic and prophetic visions. And of course, alienated and, and enemized, I guess, it made an enemy of the people those visions were usually about. Okay, so right from the beginning, it's already been misapplied and misused in all kinds of different ways. 
uh, not much has changed. Not much has changed in 2,000 years. My first exposure to the book of Revelation happened in 1993. 1993. And uh, there was an offshoot of a cult that had gathered in Waco, Texas. And they started following a guy named Vernon Howell. He later renamed himself as David Koresh. And he pro prophetically announced that he was the second coming of the Messiah. And his proof text was the book of Revelation. He used the book of Revelation to justify all of it. And in the end, people died. People died. Now, even today, irresponsible authors and self-professing prophets use the book of Revelation to justify predicting the date of the return of Jesus Christ, which he himself said, you're not gonna know, but we just love to figure it out, and make pronouncements about the end times and apocalyptic events and all these different things, even though words like rapture or antichrist aren't even found in the book of Revelation. So if you, if you saw that we were doing a, a series and it said Revelation on it, and you were like, finally. He's gonna stand up there and make sure that we all serve the same God that hates the same people we do. Yeah, you got the wrong guy. That's not where we're going with this. In fact, what you do find in the book of Revelation are words like witness. You find words like Hannah shared this morning, worship. You find words like creation. And I think one of the most beautiful words that you find in the book of Revelation is the word new. N-E-W. He is making all things new. And it starts this way in Revelation chapter 1. John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia. So right there, right at the beginning, you need to understand. This is a letter that is being written to church people. To church people. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father, to him be glory and power forever and ever. Amen. That sounds like worship, doesn't it? Look. He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Okay, so as I mentioned, this is the beginning of this series. Uh, and in a way, it's very much introductory. So thank you for taking this little journey with me. So we're going to define something right at the beginning so that we make sure that we understand where we're going through this series. A working understanding of Revelation. Revelation is an invitation to participate in the inbreaking hope of God's new creation. Let me say it again. Revelation is an invitation. It's an invitation to you and me to participate in the inbreaking hope of the new creation, of God's new creation he is bringing about. 
The visions and the imagery are not prophetic visions to scare the world straight, okay, or to predict end-time catastrophes and the dates of those things. That's not what it's about. The vision is a confrontational challenge actually to the church to get on board with what God is doing right now as he's bringing about something to happen. To not pander and not give loyalty to earthly kingdoms, he's speaking to the church, but instead to be part of the new creation that God is bringing forth right now. Right, not, not just in the future, but right now. So what that means for us as real life is this. A church that truly seeks to be one and not add to the division of the world is going to be a church that embraces its role in participating in the inbreaking hope of God's new creation. Let me say it again, because it's not on the screen. A church, that's us, that seeks to be one and not add to the division of this world will be a church that embraces its role in participating in the inbreaking hope of God's new creation. We are the ones that serve at the request and invitation of God to bring about this amazing kingdom that God wants to establish. And it has to do with what we read earlier from John's gospel. Uh, Again, Easter was last week. It's fun. It's great. Easter always is. Uh, there's new life at Easter. There's new beginnings at Easter. There's great worship, right? There's, there's excitement with Easter. And hopefully there's salvation. There's new birth at Easter. There's resurrection. And that's what a fresh faith in Jesus Christ feels like. It feels like a resurrection. Something new has taken place. The old is gone. The new has come. All throughout Scripture, we're told over and over again, the tremendous blessing and hope we have because of the resurrection, the life of Jesus Christ, something that can never be taken away from us. That is a hope that we have because of Jesus. We celebrate that. So if that's the case, then why are so many Christians today filled with so much fear? Now, the, the initial response I know is, I'm not afraid, Pastor. I'm not filled with fear. Generally speaking, the rhetoric of the last few years would indicate otherwise. Uh, we fear losing our rights, don't we? We fear losing our voice. We fear losing our privileged place in society, being given preference. I'm using the term we generally, but you get the point. Hope in those instances doesn't seem to be like the thing we lead with. It seems absent when we take that posture. Conspiracy theories are peddled, revealing a fear that somehow because of our faith, because of my faith, I'm a target. I'm not here to debate whether or not you think that's the truth or whether I think that's the truth, but I'm here to reveal that there is this undercurrent of fear in a lot of Christian discourse today. After the initial awe of the resurrection of Jesus Christ faded away, the predominant response to the resurrection of Jesus Christ was fear. Draw the curtains, lock the doors, keep the danger out, protect self. And yet the lesson of the resurrection, even the book of Revelation, is that Jesus kind of has this way of knocking down our doors. 
He removes those obstacles, and then when he does that, he invites us to come out. That's what he does. And that's what the book of Revelation is. It's an invitation to participate with him in what he's doing right now. Right now. I mentioned September 11th earlier. In the days following September 11th, and I, I refer to that one a lot because that was only a couple years after I'd become a pastor, and it was the first, like, international, national, big, huge crisis that I faced as a pastor. And I had to figure out how to lead people through that thing. And uh, in the midst of that, I watched. There was an uptick of people who, in, in the weeks following September 11th, went out and bought security systems for their homes and replaced the locks on their doors with heavier locks. I'm not sure how that deters terrorists, okay? But what it does reveal is that in those instances, we for some reason have a response to say, if we can somehow keep something out and keep ourselves in, then we're safe. Then we're protected. It gives us this sense of security. And I think it's completely natural to feel that way, <clears throat> particularly when you suffer trauma or you suffer injustice or even systemic injustice. You pull back. We close the door and click, you know, we engage the lock. We determine that what goes on out there needs to stay out there. <clears throat> it needs to stay, from, oh, stay away from what happens in here. And we need to grab onto any information we can to justify that position. The bad stays out, the good stays in, and I'm going to grab onto anything that I can to justify my actions in doing so. Well, on this second Sunday of Easter, our passage tells us that Jesus' disciples are doing exactly that thing. It's, it, and, and again, you can't blame them to a certain extent. It was a horrible weekend of violence. They literally risked everything to follow Jesus, and then he was murdered. They were probably next. So you got to give them that just a little bit, okay? But you got to remember also, these are his closest followers. This isn't a story about like, how the world attacks the claims of the Christian faith. This is a story of how followers of Jesus sometimes take a position of locking themselves behind the doors. And in pointing out the ills of the world, what we fail to understand is we're actually locking out ourselves. The irony is we lock ourselves out of what God is actually doing in the world around us. So follow me here. Remember, the book of Revelation in our culture, and even in our church culture, uh, is interpreted many times in popular circles as a prediction of cataclysmic events and the destruction of the world. And here's the problem with that. If our interpretation of the book of Revelation hangs on international tension, or if, if our interpretation of the book of Revelation and the second coming of Jesus Christ hangs on turmoil or hostility, if, you, if your hope of the return of Jesus hangs on things getting worse, then what is our incentive to leave our confines and work for peace? What is the incentive to work for justice or reconciliation or restoration in the world that we live in if the end game is that it can get worse so that Jesus will come back sooner. What's the incentive? What's the motivation? 
to alleviate poverty or oppression, if we believe that racial division, if we believe that refugees, if we believe that threats of war, trafficking, natural disasters, pandemics, economic collapse, or any other catastrophe are just a part of the end game of human history, there's nothing we can do to change many of that stuff. What's the incentive to actually insert ourselves into those things, subject ourselves to those things? I mean, if good church people already have their ticket to heaven stamped, then let's use that get out of jail card quick. Let's, let's, let's pray that Jesus would come back so that we can get out of this place. Okay, Rich, that's a little heavy handed. Listen, <clears throat> the world that we live in today is apathetic to what we are doing right this very moment. That's not a statement to scare us or to say we're something special or anything, but the world that we live in today honestly could begin to care less about what you and I really think and is actually growing more resentful of the church of Jesus Christ in this world that we live in today because in many cases they have looked at the church and they see absolutely nothing that resembles the Jesus who came to this earth and died in a garbage dump to restore humanity. We have work to do. I don't know about you, but I'm here to work. I didn't show up here just to be like, what's up? I'm here to work. And I'm here to work for the gospel of Jesus Christ and do what is required to do those things. Back in the summer of 2020, like I said, every once in a while one of these feels like a spanking, sorry. Sorry. Back in the summer of 2020, when marches and when riots were taking place in response to racial tensions, I met with a group of Christian men, and uh, I brought up plans to recommend how the church might be a conduit of peace and justice in the middle of it. Not confrontational, just what is the church supposed to be doing in the midst of where we find ourselves? We have a voice. We should be using it for something and using it well, tactfully. The overarching sentiment that I received from those men was that, you know, racism's always going to exist. There's not really anything that you're gonna do to change any of that. And the secondary application of that was, and if you keep talking like this, you are just introducing division. Why is it then, uh, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, over by the coffee house in the community space, pastors and leaders from a number of churches across this region, black and white, were willing to spend two and a half hours sharing how division caused by racism has hindered the kingdom of God and also hijacked their churches? or can't wait to meet again in a couple weeks in Gary in May to continue the discussion and bring to bear the kingdom of God in this region. Listen, I'm so grateful that for this issue, countless other issues, Real Life Church is not locking the doors, but instead leading the way in accepting the invitation, accepting the invitation to participate in the hope in the inbreaking reality of God's new creation. We are about the business of what God is about the business of. 
And the problem with the misinterpretation of the book of Revelation is that God has not called the church to be sideline spectators or fearful recluses. Instead, we're invited into a vision of healing. We're invited into a vision of hope, a vision of justice over and against the forces of evil and injustice. God is doing a new thing. And that empty cross on our platform is a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing that Jesus no longer hangs on that cross, that Jesus rose from the grave. That is a beautiful, beautiful thing. But that was not the end of a culmination of events. It's actually the beginning. It's our beginning. The good news is Jesus has a way of busting open our locked doors now that he's risen from the dead. He can come into our locked doors. And again, the irony of pointing out all the doom and locking our doors to keep evil out, we lock ourselves in from participating in the invitation to be a part of the inbreaking reality of the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, we pray that. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We don't just pray that and then close our eyes and believe real hard that by the time we open them, it will happen. That's called wishful thinking. We talked about that last week. No, we have a hope, and we actually get to be a part of that hope by participating in God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Our faith isn't lived out in the safe spaces that we create, cloistered away from the evils of the world that are around us. Instead, we are invited to a faith beyond walls and past the doors. You know, in the real world, real life, that's where we're called to be. So as we begin this journey together, one vision, we do so embracing hope. Embracing hope. Instead of looking at what Revelation says through a lens of destruction, we're going to see an invitation into the new thing that God is doing. We're going to talk about things like worship. What is, what is true worship? What is it that you and I are being invited to? When it comes to worship, we're going to be talking a little more about what does it mean to truly be the church? He's writing these things to seven churches. What is the overarching message? What does it mean to be the church that God wants to use to bring hope in his new creation through? What, what does that look like? To love God, to love people, serve the world requires a church that decentralizes itself from a building and actually understands that the church is wherever you are tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. It ain't here. I mean, there's a few of us here. <laughs> and if you're here too, that's great. Bring some donuts. But it's wherever you are. That's the church. The opportunities for us to bear the kingdom of God on the region is only going to increase as the months go by. You're gonna to begin to see that. Uh, even as recent as yesterday, a mass of people from real life gave their time and energy in the garden across the street uh, to see food barriers removed for those who go without. In fact, I'm going to ask you, would you give a hand to those that came and got sunburnt over there yesterday? <laughs> Listen, that and countless other things are going to be what real life is known for. New life, hope, a full participant in the work God is doing in the world today. Now, I'm saying all of that, make no mistake, the book of Revelation is kind of weird, okay? 
Um, it's filled with all kinds of veiled language about the terror of empire, power brokers, militants, governments, demands of loyalty. It's filled with all kinds of language that's really um, artful, I guess, and, and descriptive. It's also filled with indictments. And those indictments are for the church, for its willingness to so easily embrace empire and power and politics in the world that we live in. So in the weeks ahead, we're going to be encouraged to embrace really a very simple theme that rides all the way through the book of Revelation and is so lost so many times, and it's hope. Don't give up. And I'm not minimizing the darkness of our world. That's not the issue. But hope is coming. Victory is going to happen. We are not just called to endure it, though. We are called to engage what God is doing in the world that we live in today. And so in response, what happens is we actually unlock the door and we join God in what he's doing to restore and reconcile this world back to himself. God is resourceful, he's imaginative, he's persistent, he's determined to redeem this world back to himself. And if you and I don't do it, he'll find somebody who will. I mean, that's just what God does. I think we should accept the invitation though. I think that's where the adventure is. That's where our faith actually grows when there's feet to it and he wants to do that through us and just like those disciples hunkered down hiding from the world outside Jesus kind of has this way of opening those locked doors and hand delivers his invitation to join him in the work of the kingdom so revelation reminds us honestly that God is interested in followers of self-sacrificing self-giving love not the love of power but the love of other Yes, we have a promise that Jesus is returning, but in the meantime, we are left with a mission. A mission we will see as we look at this one vision that informs our daily living as Jesus followers in the world that we find ourselves in. Uh, partnering with God and his work of the new creation, bringing his kingdom to bear on earth as it is in heaven. So what about those disciples Hannah read about in, in John chapter 20. Behind that locked door, that locked door kept them safe <clears throat> from what was out there, but it did not keep them safe from Jesus. <laughs> and uh, the Jesus that I've known now for about 30 years, yeah, he's not deterred by locked doors. If he wants to see something happen, he makes it happen. Uh, on the second Sunday of Easter, we are reminded that just like the disciples, he seeks us out still. So make sure you let him open your door when he wants you to be a part of what he's doing. I'm excited to serve a church that's on the front lines of that, and I want to thank you for being that church. Um, one thing before we close. Uh, next week, we have a, a really unique opportunity. Um, we are part of the denomination of the Church of the Nazarene. And if you don't know what that is, sign up for the membership class. Even if you don't think you're going to join, it's good information. So I want to encourage you to jump in and, and check that out. But uh, in the Church of the Nazarene, we're a global denomination. We're an international church. We have six general superintendents that uh, preside over different regions of the earth. That sounds very 
high and mighty, doesn't it? Uh, one's from Africa, two of them are from Africa, one's from Guatemala, the other three are from the United States. They're, they're all over, and we have this amazing privilege next week of having one of those generals with us. And so, actually, he's going to be bringing the message. Dr. David Busick is going to be sharing with us next week. Uh, probably not on the book of Revelation. You'd be like, good, I need a break after what you just talked about today. But uh, he's going to come and share with us next week. I really want to encourage you to be here. Uh, Dr. Busick's a great man. And uh, it gives us a little bit of insight about what God is doing, not just here, but all over the world when we engage with people like that. And so really want to encourage you to be here for that. And then the week after that, we pick back up with Revelation again. Yay. <laughs> and so uh, that's where we're at. Hey, listen, thanks for hanging with me. I, I really appreciate it. Um, we're, we're going somewhere. So these are, these are dangerous. So trust me. <laughs> We're, we're going somewhere, and I appreciate you taking the journey with me. I really do. Would you stand? Let's pray together. Father, in your great wisdom, you lead us in directions that we probably wouldn't choose for ourselves. Um, you help us be the church that you've called us to be. You look for responsive people. Scripture says that uh, your eyes go from here to there, all over the world, looking for people who will truly just give themselves to you, who will allow themselves to be challenged. And Father, as we just talk a little bit about what it means to be the church, and then we pick up this summer with what it looks like to love one another and serve one another and encourage one another. Fathers, we're on this journey together as real life. I recognize my own responsibility in that. I've got to continue to keep myself before you, allow myself to be humbled and instructed by you. And Father, I just pray that for all of us today that we would continually bring ourselves before you and allow you, Father, to lead us the way you desire. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for letting us and allowing us to be your church. It's in Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today.